Due to the coronavirus, we have not been meeting together as a church, and so we are recording the next several series of messages as Bible study devotionals for at-home use. If you would like to see videotape recordings of these or to receive uh, our at-home worship guide, please go to graceclanton.com, and if you click on Coronavirus Updates, you should find all the information that you need. Thank you. Good morning, Grace Fellowship. We are walking, uh, we're continuing our walk through Luke's gospel, through the story of Jesus as, uh, as Luke tells it. Uh, and uh, we are actually, I'm going to go ahead and give you an idea about where we're going. Uh, this last chapter of Luke, we're going to begin to see how uh, Jesus' resurrection, how Jesus coming back to life, begins to impact the lives of those who follow Jesus. And actually, we're going to move from Luke uh, in the next couple of weeks into the book of Acts. The book of Acts was written by Luke as well. Um, and in some ways, it's actually Luke part two. It's what Jesus continues to do now through his people as they move out into the world with this message about Jesus. And so just to kind of give you an idea of where we're going. Uh, and also, as you're probably aware, uh, our president uh, and our governor are talking about opening the country back up. And so I just want you to know that we're starting to think about what that means for us as a church, how we're going to move forward. Um, you can expect to hear more uh, in the next couple of weeks about our plan for uh, coming back, back together as a church. So just wanted to let you know that we are thinking about that and trying to figure out the best way to move forward. Uh, to phase back into church, so to speak. So, uh, but let's look at uh, at Luke 24. Uh, we're going to read verses 13 through 35, and I want you to remember that uh, that this is still Easter Sunday morning. Uh, that this is Sunday morning. That a group of women have gone to the tomb. Uh, they have found it empty. Uh, two angels have told them that Jesus has risen. That he's not there. Uh, they have gone and told the rest of the disciples, Jesus' is 11 plus a larger group, and the response has been shock, uh, disbelief, astonishment. Uh, Peter's run to the tomb, and, and he doesn't quite know what to make of it. And so now we're going to actually pick up on a conversation that two of those disciples, two of those followers of Jesus are having as they leave the city. So let's look at Luke 24. Verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. And he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. So let's, uh, let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding and applying his word. Father, <clears throat> would you be at work even now? God, would you open, your eye, open our eyes up to the beauty of the word? Would you uh, come to us just as Jesus comes to these two men? Uh, and would you help us to behold wonderful things in your word? Show us how Jesus is the sum and center of the story. Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I forgot to say this on the front end, but uh, as usual as we've been doing in some of these videos, I would encourage you as, uh, as you read the passage to uh, make a note or think about the things that jump out at you, uh, the things that you would ask questions about, and even the ways that you think this passage is applying to you. How is it telling you, uh, changing what you're thinking and believing and doing? How does it apply? Uh, so if you need to, pause the video right now and talk in your living room with your family about the passage. Uh, and then you can start it, start it back up and, um, and listen to my message. Um, one of the first things that I notice as I read through this passage is how blind the disciples are uh, and how frustrating that is to them. In fact, uh, basically they've missed Jesus, right? They were, they were looking for the wrong Jesus. They were blind to who Jesus really was, not just in this story, but really ever since they've been following him. So they were, they were looking for the wrong Jesus and that left them disappointed. And so you can imagine what their conversation was like as they were as they were walking along the road, probably together, hashing out the details of the past week. You know, the, the triumphal entry, the 
the teaching in the temple, Jesus challenging the Jewish authorities, the, the Last Supper, Jesus' arrest, Jesus' trial, Jesus' crucifixion, and even, even this news about an empty tomb, all of these things, you, you, can, you can imagine they were probably just shell-shocked trying to figure out what, what do all these things mean. Uh, and then a, a third traveler joins them. And, of course, we know that it's Jesus, because Luke tells us it's Jesus, but they don't know that. Uh, so uh, they're, they're kind of left in the dark. God actually keeps them from seeing that it's Jesus. And we would ask, well, why would God do that? And the easy answer is, well, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. Uh, but maybe thinking a little bit deeper, um, there are some things that these men and Jesus' followers as a whole don't yet understand. And so while the veil is lifted at the end of the story, right, when they see Jesus breaking the bread, that kind of the veil over their eyes is lifted, Jesus needs to teach them a few things first. He needs to interpret for them what has happened to them. And just as a side note, that tells us that we're not always the best interpreters. I would argue that we're hardly ever the best interpreters of the events that happen to us. Um, and even in, even in God's Word, God has to interpret uh, what, what, the, what events mean and what the Word means. So as we read it, we also need God to interpret it for us, just as Jesus does with these men. So... So they're walking along, and Jesus comes up, and he basically asks them, Hey, what are you guys talking about? And, and their response is, is classic. They just uh, they stop dead in their tracks. right? Their, their grief is noticeable. And one of them, a, a man named Cleopas, probably a, a little bit indignant, he's raw, says, are, are you the only person who's been in Jerusalem and hasn't heard about what's been happening? Uh, and Jesus basically says, what's been happening? Uh, and Jesus here reminds me of, of the old TV, uh, TV detective Columbo. Um, if you've never seen Columbo, you can find, find some clips. But uh, Columbo, you know, he would always, he would always appear ignorant. Uh, he would always ask questions and it would kind of look like he, he always kind of looked like this bumbling detective who didn't, who didn't know what was going on. But whenever he would start asking questions, he would look like he didn't know what was going on, but actually he was directing the conversation to the point where he wanted it. And that's exactly what Jesus does, and I love it. And so Jesus says, no, what, what things? What things are you talking about? And so these two guys just unload on Jesus, right? They, um, without knowing it's Jesus, they, uh, and, and, and look at the ways that they describe Jesus, uh, if you look in verse 19, um, they describe Jesus as uh, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. A prophet, mighty in word and deed. So, now those, that description is true. Jesus uh, claimed to be a prophet, a, uh, a spokesman for God someone who spoke for God, and he did do mighty miracles. He healed people. He fed the 5,000. We've looked at, at many of those miracles as we've studied Luke. And so <clears throat> their description is 
true at least as far as it goes. The problem with their description is that it doesn't go far enough. They don't have the full picture of who Jesus is. Uh, and, then they, and then they say, our leaders crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And, and there's the rub, right? That's the, that's the sticking point for them. Because what they had hoped for Jesus didn't square with what Jesus, with, with what actually happened to Jesus. In their minds, right, their hopes and dreams and desires for Jesus to redeem Israel didn't fit with the actual events. They, really, it was the crucifixion, right? For them, the idea of a Messiah, this Savior King who would come to rescue his people being crucified, it just didn't fit. Right? They, were, they were looking for and expecting um, the wrong Jesus. The, this Jesus, this Messiah, didn't quite fit their categories. So they were, they were, they were looking. Right? They had, they, what they had done is they had taken Jesus and, and God and the Scriptures and they had remade them into their own image. Right? They had taken their desires and expectations and basically had put God on the hook for them. Um, it's kind of like asking, um, it's kind of like asking your parents for chocolate ice cream, um, and then when they come back and they say, "Well, we don't have vanilla," they're like, well, "I didn't want vanilla. I wanted chocolate." Right? We're like, they they had taken what they wanted. And, and put their they, they had put God on the hook for their desires, and they were remaking uh, God in, kind of in their image and almost trying to basically almost as if God existed to, to answer their dreams rather than fulfill his own plans. And, and we do the same thing. Uh, we tend to put God on the hook. Uh, we tend to, to try to make God fit our um, our desires and dreams, right? We think God should be doing this in our lives when in reality, that's not part of his plan at all. He's, he's at work over here. He's doing something much richer, something much deeper, but we're thinking he ought to be doing this and so we get very frustrated, uh, just like, uh, very frustrated, very disappointed, just like these two men. Uh, and so, how does Jesus correct their vision? How does Jesus correct our vision? Well, so he says to them there in verse, uh, in verse 20, 25, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So they believed some of what the prophets had spoken. Uh, they they were and when he talks about the prophets right he's pointing them back to their scriptures he's pointing them back to what we call the old testament but it would be the hebrew bible um and he's saying well you caught some of it but you didn't catch all of it right he says wasn't it necessary in verse 26 wasn't it necessary that the christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory they were fine with the Messiah entering into glory, but they missed the suffering part. 
And so what Jesus does, and it's, it's beautiful, it says he begins with Moses and all the prophets. And he's going to do this again later on in the passage we're looking at next week uh, in 24 verses, verse 46. Uh, he does the same thing. Uh, the Hebrew Bible is uh, in three parts. The law of Moses, uh, so the first five books of the Bible that we believe Moses wrote, the law, the prophets, and the writings, uh, of which the largest part is the Psalms. And so, uh, so what Jesus does is he basically begins at the beginning in Genesis and walks through our Old Testament, walks through the Hebrew Bible, and shows them how he is actually the center of the story. So maybe he started at Genesis 3.15 and showed them how he's the one, he, he's the seed of the woman who's come to crush the serpent. Uh, and then moves to Genesis 12.1 through 4 and shows how he's the true offspring of Abraham through whom God will bless all the nations. Uh, and then in Exodus, uh, Exodus 12, he's the true Passover lamb. Or Numbers 21, he's the bronze serpent that Moses lifts up in the wilderness that uh, all the people have to look to to be saved. Or Second Samuel 7, uh, where God tells David that he will raise up a son, an offspring after David who will sit on, God's, uh, who will sit on the throne of God's kingdom forever. Uh, he's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's Jeremiah's righteous branch. He's Daniel's son of man. This, this must have been the best Bible lesson ever. Jesus walking through the Old Testament and showing these two Jewish men how, how he's, he's the center of the whole story. He has to open their eyes. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're taking a picture or taking a video, focus is crucial to getting a good picture. Right? If the if the camera is off focus, right? If the if if the video camera, like when we set it up, when Kaylee sets it up, she has to uh, she has to get the focus right. Because if it's focused in the wrong place, then the, the picture will be then then the picture will be fuzzy, right? Uh, if the camera focuses on the lamp next to me or something behind me, then then that's what you'll look at. You'll be looking at the wrong thing and the picture will be off. The same is true if, if you're taking a journey, uh, but you, you're reading the map the wrong way or your map is outdated, right? You're, you could be going in the wrong direction and not even knowing it. Uh, and, and that's where these two men are. Uh, they're, they've, they've, they're looking at things, but they're not looking at them with the right focus. And so what Jesus does is he brings... He brings the true focus. He, he focuses the scriptures on himself so that the rest of the picture makes sense. Um, and that is, that is so crucial for us to understand. Uh, that is so important. Why? Why does, that, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we see Jesus as the center of the story? Um, well, it matters for how we... It matters for how we read the Bible. It matters for how we listen to sermons. It matters for, for how we do church. It matters for how we even try to, to follow Jesus, right? The, the Bible is not um, primarily a book of rules or commands, though it does have rules and commands in it. It does, in some, it does in places tell us how to live. 
Uh, the Bible is not primarily a book of examples for us to follow. Uh, in fact, many of the people of the Bible, most of the people in the Bible, give us great examples to not follow. Right? They show us how not to do life. Uh, the Bible is not a textbook. It's not a theology textbook. We're, we're not meant to come to the Bible to just derive information from, though it does contain teaching and information. The, the Bible is primarily a unified story that has Jesus at the center. Uh, it's a story about how God rescues his people through the work of his son from beginning to end. Uh, and so while these men at this point don't have what we would call the New Testament, even the New Testament, every book that follows the story of Jesus points back to Jesus. And even in the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible uh, ties up very neatly with the beginning of the Bible. But the, the story ends pointing to Jesus and what Jesus has done. So what? Why, why does that matter? Well, it matters because um, when I read the Bible or when I listen to a sermon, we very naturally put ourselves at the center. We, we very naturally make ourselves, uh, I should say, very naturally and very wrongly make ourselves the center of the story. Uh, and so... You know, maybe we read a passage in the Bible and we say, well, what does that have to do with me? Right? Maybe you, you know, especially when it comes to a difficult book like Leviticus, you know, we, we, we come to it and go, so, you know, the food laws in Leviticus. So am I supposed to eat shellfish or not? Right? That, those are the kinds of questions we ask. Or, you know, we go to a sermon or we come to church and, and, and we look for kind of a motivational pick-me-up. Right? How often, how often do we come into church or do we leave church? Uh, if if you're a church-going person, saying, you know, oh man, that really, uh, that was really a great pick-me-up. That was really a great experience for me. Right. So we very naturally kind of shape life around us, uh, our perceptions, our experiences, and. And one of the way, one of the reasons this passage is so important, that this truth that Jesus is the center of the story, is it reminds us that we're not the center of the story. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Now that that has implications for me. But I have to start with Jesus. And so you know, when I read the story of David and Goliath. The message of that story is not, you know, this, this story about a courageous young man uh, who kills uh, this ferocious, brutal giant that everyone else is terrified of. All right? The story of David and Goliath is not telling me, dare to be a David. It's not telling me to go face my giants, right? No, it's actually a story about that points us to David's greater son uh, who would give himself to go face an enemy that no one else could defeat. Sin, death, the devil, right? In the same way that David faced down God's enemy in Goliath, so also Jesus faces down God's enemy and our enemy, 
uh, in, the, in his own death. That's, that's the message that we're meant to get from the Bible. Those are the, ki- kind, those are the kinds of questions and thoughts we should be having. Right? I, don't, I don't need to come away from a sermon going, mm, you know, that, that really hit home. That was a motivational pick-me-up. Rather, I need to be... What it, what it should do is draw me closer to Jesus. And I often say that if, if, if my message, if, if, a, if, if a sermon that I preach could just as easily be delivered in a synagogue or a mosque or um, a Mormon gathering, then it's not really a Christian sermon. Because the Christian message is not basically, is not primarily moral instruction nor is it primarily a motivational pick-me-up. The Christian message is the good news about what Jesus has done. And then everything else falls into place around that. And so the way that we do church, we want to make it about Jesus, not about the people sitting in uh, the chairs, not about the people standing on the stage, not about the, the ones standing behind the pulpit. Right? We want people... We want to point people to Jesus. And that's also true of your Christian life. Uh, if you follow Jesus, all right, the first question we ask is, how does this point me to Jesus? How do I draw closer to Jesus? I ought to leave a sermon going, man, I really need Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus so that I can have a relationship with you. It's interesting that once these men finally see who Jesus is, they move from sorrow to joy. And what do they do? It's, it's almost nightfall. They're about seven miles away from Jerusalem, and they rush back to the city. And they burst in on the gathering of the disciples, uh, and they find that Jesus has already appeared to Peter. And then they share that they've seen Jesus too. And so joy replaces sorrow once we finally see who Jesus really is. And so, when, what I want you to see is that when we see Jesus as the center of the story, the center of worship, the center of our own lives, that's when our eyes are finally opened. That's when we finally can begin to make sense of everything else, and we will finally know joy. I hope that that joy is yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for sending Jesus. I pray that we would draw near to him, that we would first and foremost see that we are not the center of the story, but you, Jesus, are. Uh, And that when we come to the Bible, uh, when we come to church, uh, that we would be drawn near and made into the image of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.